Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, Offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, everybody! Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for listening today. Our guest this week is Janine L. from Chasing Heroin. She has an incredible story that I think you guys will really enjoy. Um, she shared some information with us that she typically doesn't talk about in her story, so I think it's going to be a pretty good show. Yeah, there's not really much to say. It was just a great conversation. So uh, let's just jump right into it. We really enjoyed having Janine on. I think you'll enjoy the show. Hi, everybody. I'm Rex. I'm Marina. And today our guest is Janine L. from Chasing Heroin, the podcast. Um, I've been following her for about six, seven months, and we ended up hooking up. Uh, I asked to be on the show a couple months ago, and then she scheduled me for last month. Last month? I think so, yeah. Last month, I think. Yeah, last month. And uh, we had a really great conversation, so we invited her on our show. Uh, she's doing big things in the recovery community. So this is Janine. Hey, Janine. Hi. Thank Hi, you so much for having me on. Yeah, thanks for being here. Thanks for taking the time. I know it's your day off. We appreciate it. Yeah, thank Absolutely. you. Absolutely. This is my recovery day. Monday is supposed to be my chasing heroin day. That's what I'm oh. supposed to do on this day. So this fits. Okay. <laughs> Um, well, you want to uh, tell the audience a little bit about yourself and then we'll just see where it goes from there. Sure. Yeah. Um, my name is Janine and I'm a recovering addict alcoholic. My sobriety date is January 15th, 2015. So I've got just over seven years and yeah. yeah and I, um, I'm a 12 step person, 12 step base. My recovery is what I preferred HA heroin anonymous. Oh, we've talked about that. Yeah. It was kind of like the fellowship that really spoke to me. So I am, I'm originally from Georgia and there is nothing in my background at all to explain my history later. We have like the opposite background, man. Like, like, you know, great parents, loving college educated master's degree. You know, my dad's a pilot. My mom was a social worker, you know, grew up in this really nice area in Georgia, anything like I could ever want. But I feel like I'm, I'm kind of like the poster child for addiction being chemical also, you know, because there was no, there was no reason to suggest, you know what I mean? There was no real like trauma. I mean, my parents split up, you know, when I was like 18, 19, which was challenging, but there wasn't a lot of like, you know, you could talk to somebody and be like, okay, yeah, that makes sense why this person is using, you know, um, I think it was just in me and I had this physical predilection towards addiction. So I kind of started a little bit in college, not a ton. Um, I started doing a little bit of Coke in college and, um, so I started, and I used to not include this part of my story because 
So the last five years of my using, I was completely strung out on meth and heroin. I was homeless. I was either homeless or I was in, you know, a county facility, a county funded program or jail for the last five years of my using, you know, IV drug use. And I used to kind of focus on that. But as I got a little bit more into recovery and as my awareness of like recovery and what it means to me developed over time, I realized that what's actually really key to my story is the beginning years. So I started doing a little Coke in my early twenties in Athens, Georgia, which is where I was in college. And the same way that I feel like I'm like kind of the poster child for addiction being chemical. I'm also the poster child for the the progression. You know, they say that the disease is uh, progressive and fatal, right? And like the progression of addiction in me is like kind of like remarkable, like textbook, the way that it happens. So I started doing a little bit of Coke, not a lot, you know, never buying it. I was bartending. And so I would just kind of do it when people had it. But I, I had this gut feeling at the time that I, it felt wrong. It felt like problematic, even though it wasn't necessarily from the outside. And I think that we all have a little internal voice that can speak to us that way. I didn't feel like I was just partying. It felt problematic. You know, I would do it till it was gone. Um, and if it wasn't at an event, I wouldn't go. You know, um, like I really got super centered around cocaine and whether or not it was there, like really kind of made my night or, you know, changed what I was doing. So I had this plan to move to LA to be an actress. And so I did. So at like 22, I I left Athens, moved to Georgia and I almost actually moved after like two months, I almost moved back to Georgia. And what I've never really recognized until recently or recognized out loud was I said I was going to move back because I was homesick, but really I didn't have a Coke connection in LA. And, and that was actually really part of why I was going to leave. And I had saved up all this money. It was like my big dream to be an actress. And in the back of my mind, which I didn't say to anybody, like I knew in my heart of hearts, it's because I didn't have a Coke connection anymore. And I kind of wanted to go home. So I was set to go back. I had hotel reservations the exact same way that I had come out on the way back, going through like Pecos, Texas, and, you know, just the 10, but the same path. And like a night or two before I was supposed to leave, I was out on Mulholland Drive with the guy that I lived with and some of his friends. And I don't know what happened, but I said something about being really tired. And the guy said, well, I got something for that. And I said, do you? And he had a little Coke on him. And I found my Coke connection. And I decided a few days later to stay in LA and was like, no, I feel like I can make it now. Um, I changed my mind, but really, if I'm being super honest, it's because I found like a co-connection again. So my Coke stuff, it was like really bad for a little while for like six months to a year. And then I stopped completely for about four years. And I always looked back on that four year time as like, see, I don't have a problem because I quit doing Coke once for four years. And I said that, but what I didn't realize, because I didn't know anything about real, really the tenets of recovery is I was not in recovery because I was smoking weed all the time and drinking. I just wasn't doing Coke. And so at my first hospital detox at 30, they had me do a step one timeline. And that was when I realized, because when I got to that detox, I kept telling everybody, I'd only been a drug addict for 10 months because that's how long I'd been strung out on heroin. I don't really have a problem. It's been 10 months. And I did a step one deep, a step one timeline in a hospital detox. And I realized, oh my God, I haven't been using for 10 months. I've been using for 10 years. Like I just took a break for a few years. 
So I took a break for a few years and then got back into it heavy in LA, heavy. And, but, and, and, and this is why I bring it up later. The whole time I still like kind of had a job. Like I would wait tables or I actually got certified to teach fitness during that time. So while I was doing Coke and drinking, I got certified to teach spin 27, 28. So like I was working, I had a boyfriend, I like lived places and my life was Coke bad, which is very, very different from heroin bad, which is what I learned later, right? Coke bad and heroin bad are not the same thing, but it felt more manageable. It wasn't. And I eventually, my car blew up because I wasn't ever paying to change the oil. So the head gaskets blew up, of course, because I was buying Coke. And so I left LA in theory, briefly, maybe to like get my shit together and go back, left LA, moved to San Diego and met the person that would introduce me to heroin at, you know, 29 or 30, start dating him. So I ended up getting strung out on, on heroin and learned what real drug addiction looked like in terms of what I had always thought of it to be, not what it was prior. But, and again, and you've heard some of this, what I've said is that, so like for the next five years, I was homeless, strung out, you know, you know, the deal, the, the worst of the worst of the worst. And then I finally, I would go into programs briefly. I would detox and get out. And I, you know, went through that phase where I said, you know, if, I've only been an addict for 10 years. I mean, for 10 months, I'm not really a drug addict. And I had a sponsor say to me once, and she was absolutely right. I was like, I said the same thing. I was like, look, I'm not a drug addict. I was in rehab, a state facility. And I said, I'm not really a drug addict. I just accidentally got strung out on heroin. And I didn't know you could get strung out. So as soon as I'm not on heroin, like I'll be fine. And I remember she said, she was like, okay, Janine, like I hear you. I can see why you would think that, but normal people don't accidentally get strung out on heroin, you know? And she was totally right, you know? And like, I kind of heard her say that, but now this is still four years before I finally stopped, you know? So what happened to me in the end? So my big thing was I would live in a sober living and I would pass your drug test and I would be using anyways. And as a, I came up with like a fail-proof system to pass urinalysis drug tests. And I could pass your drug test and I was ready. You could wake me up at four in the morning and I would pass your P test. But I was obviously using track marks, no job, you know, riding my bike around, you know, like stuff is going missing from the other people in the sober living. Like everybody knows I'm using and eventually, you know, something would happen. And I would get kicked out and I was in a sober living. Same thing had happened. I was using, they piss tested me that morning. This was New Year's Eve, 2014. Drug tested me that morning and I passed. And I went out that night with a former connective mine who was now clean and had been clean for a while, years. We went out and while we were out that night, the sober living home owner called me and she said, Hey, so you left some heroin in the bathroom here and you can't come back. So, and I said, you don't know that that was my heroin. Remember we were talking about like, like the, like the dope lawyer. I was like, that's circumstantial evidence. There are eight other women that live in that house. We're all drug addicts. You have no idea that that was mine. That's circumstantial evidence. I passed a drug test this morning. And she said, you know what, Janine, you did pass a drug test and you've been passing your urinalysis. So I tell you what, if you can bring me a drug, a blood test, I'll support you. And to her, I was like, fine. <laughs> but internally, obviously I was like, fuck, like, oh. nobody's ever, 
yeah, nobody's ever asked me for a blood test before, you know? I pull that so, off. <laughs> yeah, so we get off the phone, and my buddy that I'm with, because I didn't even have, have a phone. I had, like, a flip phone that they give you when you get out of jail. I said to my friend, I was like, hey, give me your phone. I need to Google, like, the local hospital logo. I was like, give me your phone. I need to look this logo up. And he was like, why? And I said, I need to forge a blood test. I need to make this blood test. I need to see what one looks like. If you could take me to a Kinko's, like I'll do some meth and I'll like tweak out on this fake document. I've done this before. Like I can make a fake document, whatever. Blah, 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 blah. And he was just kind of like sitting there looking at me. <laughs> and by now he had gotten me a motel room for the night because, you know, I'd got kicked out. And we're just sitting there and he's just like looking at me. And like, he was a long time kind of like partner in crime, but also just like supportive of me in like kind of every way, you know? And he was just looking at me, not like going along with what I was saying, you know? And I remember looking at him and I was like, okay, what, what? And I said, why are you looking at me like that? Like, I don't want to do this. I don't, she's making me do this. I don't want to forge a blood test. She's making me forge a medical document. I don't want to do this. What am I going to do? Kick on the streets, right? Because that's the whole heroin thing. You can't kick homeless, you know? And I'm like, what am I supposed to do? Kick on a sidewalk somewhere? I can't do that. I have to be able to stay there so I can at least kick if that's my plan. You know, what am I supposed to do? And he said, I mean, you could get clean. And I like sat on the bed across from him. And obviously people had said stuff like that to me before. You know how it is. You've been using for that long. Like people have said shit like that to me before. Right. But in that moment, something about, you know how like when your buddy visited you in jail and you said, I'm never going to make him feel that way again. Right. Like, like sometimes it's just, it's just one too many fucking times from somebody, you know? And like, I sat down and I thought, and like, I guess I could do that. Like, I- I'm working really hard here to, uh, to ruin myself, you know, and, but in true drug addict fashion, I was not ready that night. <laughs> and so stayed there that night, got high. And then the next day I called a connect of mine and I was like, dude, I don't know what to do. I, I got kicked out of my sober living. I don't know where to go. And he said, well, I know where you can go. I got a place you can stay. You can stay in the doghouse." in my backyard. And I said, great, really? And he was like, sure, I'll bring the dog in and you can stay in the dog house. And I was like, oh my God, thank you. So my buddy brought me to his house. He didn't want to, but he brought me there. And it was actually like a shed. It was, you could kind of stand up in it with like a dog bed in it. And he would padlock it at night from the outside. So I was locked in there overnight And the reason he did that was not to keep me trapped inside. It was because he had like let girls stay there before. And his wife lived in the main house, obviously. And she had literally tried to like murder one of them once before. So like, so that she didn't know I was out there. It was padlocked at night. So I'm like staying in this doghouse, smoking meth. I had a compact so I could like pick my face in the dark. And, you know, he's bringing me heroin. He's bringing me meth. And um, I stayed in this doghouse for three nights. And the last night, a friend of mine called me and and this was like a series of miracles kind of started to happen. And I believe that once we get into recovery, like a series of miracles start to happen. And, and this was one of the first ones because he doesn't remember if I called him or if he called me, but somehow we got connected and he's a Marine and he was back from Afghanistan. He was in 29 Palms. And so he would call me when he was back from being overseas 
And he called me and was like, Hey, I'm back. I'm in 29 Palms, which is kind of near San Diego. Uh, what are you doing? And I said, I am living in a doghouse in Oceanside. And I think I'm going to die. I think I'm going to die. And he was like, okay, if I come pick you up somewhere tomorrow, will you be there? And I, I had robbed this person before, you know how it is. I'd stolen from him and, you know, and he said, if I come meet you, will you be there? And I said, yeah, I'll go. And so he arranged to pick me up at a Burger King and I walked to the Burger King, which I discovered later, I only had one shoe. So I walked to the Burger King with one shoe, completely unaware. After I'd gotten to his house, I was there for a few days and he brought me home a pair of like tennis shoes. And I was like, oh, you didn't have to do that because I just been on the couch for a few days. And he was like, well, I did because you only had one shoe. And I was like, get the fuck out. No, I didn't. And he was like, Janine, go check the room you're staying in. You only had one shoe. So I ran back there and looked. And not only did I actually only have one shoe, it was a high-heeled wedge boot. So I had been walking down the street to the Burger King with one high-heeled shoe on with my gym bag. And I had one Suboxone that a somebody I had traded somebody some heroin for one Suboxone that had a bite had already been taken out of it. So I had this like crumbled ass little Suboxone and a cigarette cellophane and a plastic bag with some change in it. And, you know, I hadn't had an ID in years, you know, like, in fact, when I got clean, my mom was like, there, there was no way for me to even prove who, who, who I was. And my mom was like, well, maybe we go to social security and I'll swear an affidavit that I gave birth to you on this day at this location. And I can sign something like there was no way to even prove like that I was a person or who I was, you know? So like I went to the Burger King and he picked me up and he took me to his house and I brought a little bit of dope with me, of course, and ran out after a few days. And then I was really sick. I ate my one Suboxone. And then I was sick. So I drank for another 10 days. So the last time I actually did heroin or meth was January 5th, but then I drank for another 10 days. And the last time I drank or used anything was January 15th, 2015. And I, that was actually my last detox. That was actually my last use, um, which nobody really expected it to be, including me. And I had a couple of, I had one friend at a sober living that I could live in because I'd like burned all my bridges at all the sober livings and all the programs. And um, somebody let me stay in one sober living on the couch for 300 bucks a month. I didn't have any money, obviously, but I came back to stay in the sober living and I had done one thing before I left. So when I would get clean, I would teach again. I would get into fitness again. I could get a job for a few months before I relapsed. And I was always like trying to find another teaching job during these periods of sobriety, you know, however brief. And I had, or even if I was using, I'd like look on Craigslist and I had sent an email to a gig teaching spin and teaching bar right before I left. And she had answered me, but of course I didn't respond. So when I got back from detoxing, I thought, I wonder if that girl would like talk to me again. So I reached out to her. She reached back and said, yeah, we can set up an audition. And um, I took the bus down to the studio. It was like, you know, an hour and a half each way auditioned. My mom gave me an old ass iPod. I had never heard of Spotify or Instagram. Like these were brand new things to me. She had to tell me about both of them. So, um, I showed up auditioned and I was still good. You know, my playlist all like suddenly stopped in 2010. That was like the last music that I knew. So I was playing like old ass music. She was like, Oh, so kind of like a throwback vibe. And I'm like, sure. Yes. Throwback vibe. Not that I've been <laughs> in five years, you know, like, sure. Um, and I got the gig and I started teaching again. And um, 
four and a half years after that, I actually bought that studio, which I now own. And I stayed clean this time for the first time. And I got really into the program of 12 step. That's what I've done. You know, I already had a sponsor and, and, and this is one of the things I talk about with relapse. And I only realized this like two years ago when I was taking, I was talking with a friend of mine about this and she was like, what did you do when you got back? And I said, well, you know, I was going to these meetings and she was like, oh, how'd you get there? I said, I walked. She was like, oh, okay. So you knew where they were. I said, well, yeah, yeah, I knew where they were. And you called, you already knew Rachel, my sponsor. And I was like, yeah, she's been my sponsor for years. I never stay clean, but yeah, of course, you know, and I'm starting doing step work. So I already had a book. And I realized while I was talking to her, every time relapse, we're gathering more information every time. And then it's all like the first time you kick, it's like, what the fuck? Suboxone? What is that? You know what I mean? Like meetings in a basement on a Friday night. I don't want to do that. How many? Five a week? That's crazy. You know, like I got to get this book. What are you talking about? Like the first intro into recovery is really a lot of information, you know, but like every time you come back, it's like, and I was say, I say this at meetings sometimes. And I'm like, if you're up, I hate this term chronic relapser, but I was a chronic relapser. And I'm like, if you're a chronic relapser, like, here's the good news. You probably got a big book laying around somewhere. You know what I mean? Like you could probably call somebody right now and be like, Hey, I'm back. Will you sponsor me? And they'll be like, yeah, I guess. You know what I mean? Like, you know, where all the meetings are, like you already have all the information. It's all there when you're ready to like execute on that knowledge. And I realized that recently. And so I've, I've tried to like work into that into some of my messaging too, because like, I felt like such a failure for all those relapses, but I was learning more every time, you know, and I knew I could walk to those meetings and, you know, I threw myself into that. I threw myself into my job. Um, but what really shifted for me was a couple months in, and I think that this is a little bit of what you heard on that one episode, the heroin, heroin, like 90 days in, I turned 35 and had nothing, right? Like living on that couch, no money. By then I think I'd gotten like a state ID, but I was still going to check cash places and I was 35, you know, and I was in a really bad mood that day. I was really, de- I was really bummed out. I was really depressed, you know, and, um, and you know how it is. Like everybody around me was like, yeah, but you're clean, man. You know what I mean? You're clean. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, but that's not really doing it for me right now. You know what I mean? Cause I'm 35 like, years old. Yeah. Yeah. And my friends like own homes and I'm a broke ass. And like, this is not what I thought was going to happen. And, and and what I remember thinking was like, if you could go back in time and find me, cause I did really well in high school. I, I did really well on my SAT scores before I went to Georgia. I went to a college in DC called the George Washington university. It's like, you know, a really good school. I did really well on my SATs, five AP classes, my senior year. And like, one of the things I was most upset about was all that shit that I had lost. You know, like I had all this promise. I was going to go to law school and you know, like all this. And that day I kept thinking like, dude, if you could go back to my high school, if like the ghost of Christmas future could have like floated into the hallway and stopped me in 1998, with my little friends and been like, Hey, Janine, check it out. I got a crystal ball here. Do you want to see where you're going to be when you're 35 years old, the day of your 35th birthday? I'd been like, definitely show me, right? Like, I'm sure I'm going to be rich, probably famous. Like, I don't know for what, but I'll be married, living in a mansion. I'm sure I'll be rich. I'm sure I'll be famous. Show me where I'll be. If that fucking angel had been like, yeah, none of that shit's going to happen. But 
you will, the best thing going for you that day will be that you will be 90 days off of heroin. That will be your crowning achievement this day in your future. If, if like, if that had happened, I would have been like, wait, what the, like, this cannot be right. That's not my life. Like you should be on like the, the shop guys are on the other side of the school. Like this is the <laughs> AP wing. You know what I mean? Like, you know, like you, this is the wrong, this cannot be my life. I would have been horrified. And I just kept thinking that, you know, and I'm like, how did I get here? How did I get here? And I went outside on my sober living and my sober living was like not in a nice area, but I went outside to my sober living and I would smoke people's butts out of the ashtrays. I was like, and I, and I share this a lot too. I was a very, you might relate to this. I was the grimiest of the grimiest drug addicts. Like other addicts didn't want me around. You know what I mean? Like I was picking my face bleeding everywhere i was like like i would use your needle dude like if you fell asleep i would like use your rig you know and it like didn't care sharing needles homeless you know like grimy smoking cigarettes off the street off the ground and i was still doing that in sober living at 90 days i was picking up cigarette butts off the ground and smoking them and i went outside i was smoking a butt that i picked up off the ground and I did this meditation, a client at that studio I was teaching at had recommended I do a Deepak Chopra meditation, which I was doing. I was actually doing it. And the focus was gratitude. And the quote of that meditation, I still remember, was an author, Melody Beattie. She read a book called Codependent No More. Mm -hmm. And the quote was, gratitude unlocks the fullness of life. It makes what you have enough and more. And like, you've been in recovery for a long time. I've been in recovery for a long time. I've heard shit like that before. You know, it's like the guy telling me you could get clean. This was not the first time I'd heard something around gratitude, but like I did the meditation and I was sitting on the couch, you know, it's like how there's a couch outside and like in in certain rehabs, you know, like there's a like rained on molded, you know, couches outside smoking my butt cigarette. I took off the ground. And I did this meditation and I stopped and I was overwhelmed with gratitude for not being dope sick in that moment. And I remember like looking at my arms and thinking like, I don't have to get well right now. You know, like I don't have to get well. And getting the idea that I was such I was so enslaved, you know, I had to get 20 bucks before I could take a breath, you know, that was the worst part of the using for me, not jail, not being homeless. The worst part was being physically strung out. I hated it because you can't do anything. You know, you can't do anything when you're physically strung out. Your life's over, you know, like my mom lives here. She'd want to go to the beach with me. And I'm like, I can't go with you. Like, I'm sorry, because in two hours, I'm going to have to get well. And if I don't have dope on me, I got to be getting money. I can't go with you. I can't go with you anywhere, you know? And like in that moment, I suddenly felt overwhelmed with gratitude for like not being, not having to get well. And then I opened my eyes from doing the meditation and there was this like really pretty view off the deck of my sober living. And I thought, man, that's beautiful. It was like sunset. And then I realized Okay, the geography didn't just change. <laughs> like, that's always been there, you know? That's always been there. 
if my shitty little sober living that I've lived in a million times, that's view has always been there, but I couldn't ever see it before, you know, and something about not having to get well allowed me to get grateful for like what was right in front of me, you know? And then my next thought was, okay, so did being a heroin addict make me more grateful? Did that, did that come of that shit? Because that girl in high school bopping around wasn't grateful for a sunset either. You know, my goal was to be a divorce lawyer. That's what I, that was my goal as a teenager. Like Ethley Bailey and um, Johnny Cochran were my heroes. Like other girls look up to like Marilyn Monroe. I looked up to like lawyers for defending criminal murder. Like that's where I was going to go right in high school. Like that's what I wanted. And like, and I realized that did heroin make me softer, kinder. And I can see that now, you know? And so at about 90 days, I had this massive shift from shame and regret around what had happened to, did this actually gift me something, you know? And when I was using Coke a lot, the guy that I was with really wanted me to stop, you know? And we had this great little like cottage in Venice beach and he worked really hard and he really wanted me to quit doing Coke and I couldn't stop doing cocaine. And I remember him saying to me once we were fighting and I remember saying to him, I was like, dude, take it easy. This isn't even that big of a deal. It's a little Coke. And this is interesting that I said this. I was like, it's not like I'm shooting fucking heroin. You know what I mean? Like I've never been arrested. Like I'm still have a job, you know, like we've got money, you know, it's just a little Coke. And I remember he kind of stopped and just like left the relationship (laughs) at that moment. And he looked at me and he was like, you know what you mean? You're right. You're right. You still have a job. You know, none of that other shit has happened to you. And you're slick enough and you're smart enough that you might be able to do that, to do this forever, you know, but you're always going to be sick three days out of the week. You're always going to be about to get fired. You're always going to be a little bit broke, right? It's always going to be weird with your dad because he kind of knows, but you won't admit it. But the worst part is you'll have to live your life knowing you're not the woman you were supposed to be. But you're right. I guess you could do that. Eight years later, I'm on that, that, that you know, that balcony in, in my sober living. And I realized not only did heroin make me more grateful, it took that Coke alcohol life off the table for me because he was right. I probably could have done that forever, you know, just like kind of teaching here and there until I got fired again, you know, maybe waiting tables, just always, just always shy of doing what I was supposed to do. Right. Because those substances were stopping me shy. And so it completely changed my perspective. I realized heroin saved my life. Heroin forced me to make a choice because now I'm ensconced in recovery and abstinence, right? Like that's my, that's my reality now when I'm going to rehab. So there's no like, oh, I just drink now, right? Like that was not the scene, which for which I'm grateful. And heroin forced me to make a choice. You know, it forced me to choose life and that Coke alcohol path, I was probably going to stay on for like forever. And so when those two things happened, those realizations were like massive shifts for me. And I think that that's why I was finally able to do it 
you know, this time. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> wow. Yeah. yeah that wow. Was, that was awesome. Uh, thank you for sharing. Um, yeah. Thank you so much. So, uh, part of the reason that uh, I waited so long to kind of voice my recovery is because the first time I did it, I made it five years. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was 32. And I made it all the way to 37, um, almost 38. And then I relapsed like it was nothing. Yeah. Like I split for my wife. She moved to Florida. I went because I wanted to be close to the kids. You know what I mean? Like we had promised that I'd still be able to be in their lives. So I went down there. And as soon as we, I realized like, like boom, it's done. I was like, fuck this. I'm getting on a bus. I'm going to Denver and I'm getting fucking high. Yeah. Because I know, and this was, this was my junkie logic because I don't want to go to prison in Florida. I don't know where to get heroin here. I, all they had down here is uh, those blue oxys. Yeah. 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 I, I hate that shit. I, I was like, that's still Billy heroin. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like I would do it if I was sick. Yeah. You know? Thick, like I would keep them and trade them for heroin, you know. Right. <laughs> like, yeah, totally. But, but I knew in my head, I was like, "Well, I'm going to Denver because one, I don't want to go to jail here. But two, I'm just going to get high for like a month, and then I'm just going to go back to meetings. I, I know right. everything there. It's cool. Yeah. And and I did that. Yeah. Well, not a month. It was a few months. Then I went to jail. Right. Um, for something stupid, but I was there long enough to kick. Mm-hmm. I was there like. 11 days. Okay. Um, and fortunately on that relapse, um, I was doing mostly Coke. Okay. Like I would Coke, all, I would do dope in the morning and then a little bit around the middle of the day and some at night to be able to go to sleep. But like I was hustling for Coke. Okay. And I, for my divorce, stashed away before we split up. So I was just burning through that. I was like, oh, partying like a rock star. I'm just going to burn against one. Be all good. I'm going to get clean. Boom, go to jail. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. 
Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. And I got out and I, and I went back to Boulder, Colorado, and I started going to meetings again. And they were also happy. They're like, oh, because I had the, the I, I was clean for four years. And then the fifth year, I was like in a full blown relapse without doing any dope. Yeah. Barely going to meetings because people were like, why are you going to meetings? And I'm like, fuck you. You're my sponsor. You know what I mean? And then my sponsor's like, why are you going to meetings? And I'm like, fuck you. You're sponsor. And, uh, but then I relapsed again shortly after, like within like two weeks ago on the meetings. But I was hang, hanging out like a couple blocks from my home group and this other group that I used to go to with all the same people. And twice a week, they would come down to the library and they'd get me. And I'd be like, no, I'm high. And like, we don't care. We just yeah. want you to do meetings so that we know at least for this hour, you're good. And yeah. then they would take me out and feed me. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah. Cigarettes, because I'd be like, hey, what's up? Can I get like 20 bucks, get some cigarettes? <laughs> they'd be like, oh, <laughs> That way you ain't gonna fuck around. I'm like, all right. <laughs> um, but I mean, I wanted to go a whole life cycle. They say every seven years you're a completely new human being. Every cell in your body is completely different than it was seven years before that point. Yeah, yeah. Seven years without heroin since I was seven years old. Yeah. I started when I was twelve. I stopped when I was almost forty. Yeah. So once that happened, it was like okay, it's for real. Yeah. Like, like that's not me. Anymore. That's kind of interesting. That's cool. Cause I just got seven years. So that's kind of cool. Yeah. So like, there's no part of me that's down heroin in this body <laughs> so cool. yep. or meth or whatever. Awesome. Yeah. Um, and you also talked about how a couple times you mentioned that it was like that one time you'd heard it so many times, but then it was like yeah. that one time it was like a light clip on, um, so the first time I got sober, um, I got sober in this really dingy fucking dungeon of a detox. Um, you could go outside. Like it wasn't locked down at all. Like yeah. you were, if you could, you want to walk away, go. Yeah. You know, cops might bring you back and then they'll take your shoes. You can still leave. You're yeah. Usually, yeah. Um, but after I went to rehab for a couple of weeks and came back, I was living with my sponsor and we used to go to that the Sunday morning meeting above the detox every week. And uh, she would always have me go over and talk to the bums that were there every week. Same ones every time. And one day I was, one day she's like, you're going to go talk to the fellows. And I'm like, why? Like, what's the point? I was like, every week, blah, blah, blah. I'm here. I was like, they ain't trying to hear it. And she's like, neither were you. She was like, every single person has this number or numbers above their head. And nobody can see that number except for God. Wow. Times that person needs to hear something before they actually hear it. Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah. And uh, so, you know, like I immediately, I was like, oh, that's the magic number. Like that's. Yeah. That's yeah, magic. Magic. yeah. And, uh, been. yeah, absolutely. Cause I know that's what it was like for me when my best friend was crying in the county jail. That was it. I was like, oh, 
That's because I knew I didn't want to anymore. But once I hurt, once I that happened, it was like, oh, okay, I'm not doing heroin anymore. Like that is no longer on the table. We have to figure right. this. Right. <sighs> so can I can I ask you about? Um, it seems like especially in in the beginning of your well through recovery, I guess um, you had layers of reflecting upon things and seeing your level of denial and just being totally shocked by like, and I, I find this part of recovery and addiction and life in general, fascinating, the, the lies that we tell ourselves and perpetuate so that we can continue yeah. to do for baloney we are trying to justify. Yeah. Um, so my question, I guess, and you both can address this because you're at different places in recovery than I am. Um, and my recovery, I don't know if Janine knows this, but I'm um, an adult child of an alcoholic and dysfunctional family. So I'm in emotional recovery, okay. um, which I kind of feel like if, if you really get recovery, then eventually you really get to emotional recovery. Cause yeah, yeah, if ideally. you really want to deal with your addiction, you got to yeah. deal going on inside yeah um where was I going with this um but just having this every time I evolve a little bit more in in this evolution of myself I'm I'm realizing more denial um and it's just like wow like you know when when will that stop when will you know does it stop do you keep continually finding like little places where you're like wow I'm I'm still not really being totally 100% clear with myself right there. Um, is it, is it degrees? Like as, as you move deeper into your recovery, do the degrees of denial just get a little more tolerable? I, um, well, for me, like I, the more I'm in recovery, the more I recognize tenants of addiction that were earlier in my life that I didn't, that I never would have called as such. Um, so like, yeah, just all the, the awareness of like, Oh wait, that's probably why I would binge on whatever. It's like I already had that addiction kind of gene, like that addiction quality, you know. But yeah, the the layers of realization that took so long. That's a, that's a good way to put it. Like the because even though I say that that happened at ninety days, I didn't start talking about recovery until I had you know two years. So like there there was that little bit of awareness, but like that awareness had had to grow over time, you know, and like the realization about the relapses, I was actually just learning more. That was around year six. When I took my six years, I was talking to somebody about it and I was like, Oh, that's what that was about. You know, like, and then even I met my husband at about year four in a meeting and, you know, like realizing, okay, this is why everything didn't work out, (laughs) you know, like it was all coming right here. But then that also added another layer to feeling okay about my recovery. Because one of my big things, you know, as a woman was I'm 35, just getting off of heroin, who the fuck is going to marry me? Right? Nobody. So like, that was one of my biggest fears. And then that went away. And so like, and that went away directly because of, of my addiction, my recovery, right? We met at a meeting of HA. And so like, that was another way that I became really grateful for my addiction. Like, so like layers to the denial, but there are also, I feel like more layers of getting grateful for the addiction in the first place, you know, like, I think that that continually evolves. And I don't know if that ever changes, you know, I don't know. I'm not as, you know, with meetings being closed for so long, 
I've got to get back into going regularly. You know what I mean? Um, like it was one of my favorite things to do. And I, you know, you were just saying like, you know, hadn't gone to meetings in a while. Like I, I go sometimes cause I get invited to lead, you know? Um, but I think the way that those layers would continue to unravel is if you're still like actively in recovery, you know? And so I try to do that. Like on Thursday nights, I do do a book study online and AA book study, you know? Um, and then I get my podcast kind of, but the podcast I think isn't really recovery. Um, because I've got commercial goals with it. So like, I don't know that it covers my recovery. Does that make sense to you? I mean, cause you're doing a recovery podcast too. And so it's like, this probably, I don't know that I could get away with saying that this is my recovery. Cause at some point, like I want to sponsor and I want to make money, you know? So it's like, I don't know if this is, you know, but I'm constantly talking about it, you know, but yeah, that was definitely true for me. Um, and I, when you were asking, I immediately thought, um, Today, uh, I realized that I have one more issue to work on. So I, I got a part-time job just washing dishes at a diner okay. down, both small diners only open till like two, um, just to supplement income till my speaking and stuff picks up. Yeah. But, uh, they had those little, little, what are they? Six pans. They, there's like six of them that fit. Oh, yeah, yeah. So I just take my phone and I just stick it in there, you know, and it amplifies the music. Uh-huh. So I work with this one person. Uh, I'm not going to name him. And he's just, <laughs> he was bitching all day because I'm too fast. Uh, right? Because like they're for like two years now, they've had dishwashers who just, I don't know, are slow. Yeah. And uh, I don't do anything slow. I'm a hard worker. When I work, like, that's why I don't work, like working by the hour. I do yeah. more work one hour than most people do in one shift. Yeah. So I come back from taking the trash out and my phone's moved and the pan's gone. Oh, shit. At area before. And I, so I was like, well, maybe I had it too loud. Maybe it was the owner. So I said, hey, Alan, did you, did you grab my phone or move my phone? She's like, no, why is it missing? I was like, no, it just got moved. It was just weird. I just thought you might have. She's like, no. So then I asked a couple of the waitresses, and then I was like, she did it. I know he did it. Yeah. I, I realized in hindsight, when it was all over, like this, like this situation really moved my cheese. Like I was like, who the fuck's gonna touch my shit? Yeah. You know what I'm saying? And like I was really like, I was in prison mode. Yeah. Fuck somebody. And this dude's old. He's got like 15 years on me, and I'm 48. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 And he's like, my size, he's a little Chicano dude. Like, he's a really nice guy. He's just, right. for some reason, working me today. Yeah. And then it turns out that it was just one of the other cooks because all the other pans were dirty and they needed one that they... Oh, could... so it wasn't even that guy. Oh, shit. <laughs> but I was like, even after I found out, I was like, well, they should have fucking said something. They should have... Yeah. Them. They li- it literally, like, was like this. <laughs> like, that's it. They moved it, like, two inches. Yeah. And that's only because the lip of the thing was like an inch and a half high. You know what I mean? Right, like, right, right. Yeah. I go in the bathroom, like really like what's going on and really examine that. Like, why am I, but like for me, like I, the realizations are, is that everything that was always there is still there. And like, I tell this, I actually told this to uh, Jeff Vickers from Sober Slogans. Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, 
because he was like talking about the, the years of actual not using, but he was still in addiction. He just wasn't yeah. actually doing coke. And he talked about how hard it was when he started again. And I was like, that's because the whole time your addiction was working out, doing push-ups, yeah. weight pile, getting bigger and stronger. And I realized that's still happening. Right. Yeah. So for eight and a half years now, my addiction, like my demons have been waiting for their turn. Right. Really my demons, but like, I, I call them my defense mechanisms. Yeah. You know, I don't really like character defects either because it's what kept me alive being on the streets and in prison in yeah. full on addiction. So like, but those, all those issues that I did in my first fourth step 15 years ago, still there. If anything, stronger. Because right. oh, they have been dipping and dodging and trying to manipulate and finding ways in. And like, is this a crack? No, that's not a crack. Well, this might be a crack. Can we get in here? You know, and uh, I don't know. I, I, I don't, I don't I, it's weird, like, to, to just know that if I just let my guard down. Like, I don't feel like, oh, if I let my guard down, I'm going to get high. You right. know what I mean? But I'm not worried about that at all. That's not in my Rolodex at all anymore. Yeah. You know? I don't think about that, you know, yeah. but uh, I don't want to be an angry person anymore. Right. Yeah. Like when I was addicted, I was very angry. Yeah. I had a lot of anger. That's the main thing that I had to learn how to forgive myself and forgive everyone else, you know, but I also agree with you what you said. Uh, heroin saved my life. Yeah. If I hadn't started doing dope when I had done started, I would have killed myself or yeah. I would have ended up in some other situation either drunk or whatever, because that was the other alternative where I was from. Small town in the 80s. You know what I mean? Like, you could either go to my friend's mom and get heroin from her, (laughs) or my other friend's mom and get alcohol from her. And get alcohol, yeah. Yeah. One was a drug dealer, one worked in a liquor store. Right. But later on, I believe that it saved my life as well. Like, in the whole way, because it kept me safe until I could deal with what I, what had happened. Yeah. Like I lived in denial for almost three decades. You know, I was the same way. Oh, I'm not an addict. Like I'm sure I'm chemically dependent, well, but I'm not an addict. I get high because I want to. That's right. the thing is if you, if you show and express that you have breaks that you can navigate still, people are like, oh yeah, I can't really say much because she can stop. She can still steer. She's still functioning. She's still right. going to work, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think it's almost harder sometimes when you are in a, in a place where like, you're still, you're still able to like work, you know what I mean? Like somebody really close to me is obviously needs to quit drinking, but like, he'll keep a job, you know what I mean? And like, you can look at me and he can say like, okay, Janine, like you were a heroin addict. You obviously needed help. Like I'm just drinking. And I almost think it's harder for those people. And I don't want to say, but almost more like. It takes a little bit more to, in those situations, when you're still functional, go into recovery, you know, when you don't really have to, you know, cause like, and, and I've, and I've told this person before, if it weren't for being like homeless and strung out, I don't think I would have ever gotten sober. You know what I mean? I only did because I, because I had to, you know, because there was nothing left for me. So to do it when you don't, you know, when you've still got some of those avenues, I think is really admirable. I, uh, I called them my yet's. Yeah. Yeah. I still had yet. Yeah. Well, I haven't done that yet. You know, right. Right. I think, like, well, I've never sold my ass. Right. You know what I mean? And I've had a lot of offers. Right. 
like, well, because like, especially when, like when I was in San Francisco, then like predatory dudes are like, "Hey, what's up, junkie?" You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like, you know what I mean? And I'm like, no, I got yeah. a dog. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah. people feel sorry for the dog. I'm good with that. <laughs> but yeah, it's uh, my uh, sponsor used to call them um. Uh, making reservations when you right. still have about your sobriety and like, Oh, well, I mean, do I really have to do 90 meetings in 90 days or do I really have to like keep doing service work, you know, like, or yeah. whatever it is, you know what I mean? Or like, well, I'm going to hold back that part of my fist up. You know what I mean? Like, I don't want, like, I'll tell them all this, but I, I need to hold on to this and take it to the grave with me. Yeah. That's a res- You're like making a reservation for a relapse. Right. Yeah. The thing is, is like you made the reservation, but you have no idea what it's for. Yeah. That's yeah. the terrible thing. That's you know? the terrible thing. You don't know what's going to happen when you do it again. Yeah. No, you have no idea. You know, and like, like I, I see on social media all the time, people are like, oh, I don't have one more trip back, one more relapse in me. I'm like, yeah, you do. Yeah. Everybody has one more relapse in them. The trip, the question is, is do you have one more recovery in you? Right. You know exactly. I mean, and like, that's what kind of really did it for me psychologically for myself. You know, Jim was the catalyst. He was the reason he was my North star. Right. He was like, that's, I can't get high because of him. And then I started doing the work and it's like, okay, I can't get high for me. You know what I yeah. mean? Like, you know, like if you learn, if you're really doing the work that it's an absolutely selfish program. Yeah. You know, and like <clears throat> people who don't understand it, don't understand it. You know, like I've had, like I've, I've had friends who are like, dude, do you really have to go to that many meetings? You know, and I don't, so when I got clean the first time, clean this over the first time, I was all about AA, HA, and CA. Yeah. Um, Cause we're in the Denver metro area, Boulder. Um, they all worked out of the big book, the AA big book. Um, and the HA and the CA were like people like me, street yeah. junk crackheads people that i related to you know what i mean that were doing it getting it done and i'm like cool if these people can do it i can do it you know what i mean and then aa was like my <laughs> to me they call i, I called people in aa normies right you know what I mean? oh, okay yeah. you gotta drink it that way yeah yeah you know what i mean like yeah yeah, totally, yeah. yeah. um but uh i didn't make it my whole recovery was dependent upon 12-step meetings and that thing yeah and Every time I went to one of my sponsors or a close friend or someone that I respected in recovery, I'd be like, Hey, I'm, you know, like I'm doing the work and I'm being honest and I'm being thorough and I'm not holding anything back. And I still want to get high. Like, I don't understand. I don't know what to do it and what to do. And it was always the same answer. Pray about it. Did you still feel that way after five years, like towards the end, you still felt that way the whole time? There was a brief period in 2007, when I was traveling around the country, speaking at AA meetings and different conferences, and my best friend at the time was a super trust fund kid. So, like, we would schedule my speaking events near cities that had casinos, and we would just go play poker. We'd, like, travel around the country playing poker for a living and going to AA meetings. And it was amazing. It was so yeah. awesome. Like, going to, like, do you ever want to go to a fucking crazy meeting? Go to one in Akron, Ohio. Okay. Right. Yeah. Like, did, seriously, you go up and, like, the person, when you share, you go up on a podium. And even if you're just like, hi, I'm Rex. Yeah. You kind of walk up and say, hi, I'm Rex. Yeah. Not really. But, like, you go up and you talk, and then people sit there, there's cross talk. 
everybody will tell you what you're doing wrong or what you need to do. Oh, it's crazy. Yeah, it's super crazy. It's like, you're like, oh, like first time I went to leave, they're like, nah, hang on, it's time for comments. I was like, what? They're like, oh yeah, like y'all call it crosstalk. Oh my God, that's so crazy. Here, I'm listening. I got to grab something. I'm still listening to you. Yeah, no worries. Um, I totally forgot what I was saying. I don't know. I lost my train of thought. That happens sometimes. (laughs) (laughs) I was asking if you still wanted to use the whole time. Oh yeah. Um, yeah, I did. You did. I was still in that frame of mind that like, like you said, when you were like, if it wasn't for being homeless and blah, 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 that you probably would have gotten clean. I didn't want to spend the rest of my life in prison, mm-hmm. but I still wanted to get high. Yeah. I got clean to get off parole. Then I got off parole and I was like, well, fuck, <laughs> you know, yeah. like, I don't want to go back to jail. So I guess I'll just keep doing this sober thing. Yeah. But the was I used to tell people, I used to say this in meetings. If there was no negative repercussions, I'd be high right now. Yeah. And for every day for the rest of my life. Yeah. I used to, say, I used to joke in meetings, like, don't let me win the Powerball. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah. I'll, put, I'll, I'll hire a lawyer to give me a $100 a day allowance. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. I can pay all my bills. Like, I was serious. And I had reservations. Yeah. And then when I did relapse and I went back out, to do more research because clearly I wasn't right. done. You know, that's I love the, that. I yeah. love that. Yeah. <laughs> Gathering you, more information. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I needed more information. <laughs> I clearly did not have enough tools in my toolbox to accomplish the mission. Right. And you know, I don't, I don't, I didn't, I don't think I talked about this on your show, but <clears throat> DMT had a big part of me getting clean. Yeah. You, yeah. Uh, you mentioned it once. Yeah. You mentioned uh, it briefly. Yeah. Uh, and uh, it shattered the lie. The lie was the heroines told me, hey, I will keep you numb and shut everything up if you give me everything. Yeah. And so I did. Yeah. And she held up her end of the bargain for 27 years until I smoked that DMT. And I unlocked something. And I didn't realize this until like last year, like six, yeah. seven months, talking yeah. to Brett from Recovery Survey. Mm-hmm. Um. And I've really thought a lot about it. And I'm like, man, that is absolutely the truth. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, uh, but I mean, I'm not saying that everybody has to do that. Right. But, uh, but for me, that's what it took because then I was getting high and everything was still going on. If yeah. anything else, it was like an amplifier. Yeah. Because now, like, I felt like a total piece of shit because I relapsed after smoking DMT because I was clean when I did it. And uh, a couple weeks later, I relapsed. And uh, nothing got quiet. Everything got louder. Yeah. It was like, all of a sudden, it was like, ha ha, see, we win. You yeah. lose. We finally found a way in. Yeah. And like, like none of the fucking voices would shut up. Like, yeah. just the self, horrible self-talk. Hard yeah. to, I would murder somebody if they talked to me that way. Literally. It would be worth going to jail. Just kill them for talking to me the way I talked to myself back then. And, uh. That's ultimately what led to me. I was like, I can't do this. I was like, cause I know myself, I'm not going to get locked up forever. I'm going to get locked up for like 10 fucking years and I'm going to go do like seven years. Then I'm going to get back out. I'm going to get high again. Right. And I'm like, yeah. oh, I don't want to do anything to break the law. And then I'm going to break some little stupid law that they can't lock me up forever. They can just keep giving me a decade at a time. And like all of these thoughts are going through my head. And that's, that's ultimately what kind of led to that decision. You know what I mean? It was like, I just, I'm tired. 
can't do it anymore. I want out, you know. Um, so this time when I did it, I was like, I'm not going to dive into 12 step. Like I'm, I'm still going to go to, I, I was going to one meeting a week. I had a sponsor who I also met with once a week. Um, and I started really attacking it from a mental health. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like I mean, I clearly have some, like there's obviously chemical imbalances in my brain. I've been fucking shooting chemicals for 30 years. You know what I mean? There's gotta be something going on there that's off. You know, so then I was like, so then I became all willing to take psych meds, which I don't advise, especially if you're in jail. You know what yeah. I mean? Like, like, cause all it really did, I still did all the work and it didn't take anything away. It just made me gain a shit ton of weight and kind of feel horrible about myself in that aspect. You know what? I actually have a question for you that I didn't get a chance to ask on your episode. Did yeah, your, so Arlene was abusing you. You lived with your grandfather slash dad. Yep. And then you reference your mom, who is your grandmother. You would see, though, she was in your life. Uh-huh. Did she know you were being abused at the other house? Like, she knew Arlene smacked me around. Okay. Um, that she got overzealous in her disciplining of me. Okay. But uh, but not to the extent of what was going on? No, that's what killed her. Okay. Like, seriously, like, like <laughs> when I was growing up, Cass was fat. Um, <laughs> she was like, I used to call her my four by four. She was like four foot 11, like four feet wide. <laughs> and, uh, but she's a firecracker. She raised shit. How many? Did you say nine? Well, there's, there's nine total, but she didn't raise the two oldest. So she raised seven of us. Yeah. Mostly girls who fought back, talked back, weren't hers. Yeah. None of them were all stepchildren. Me and Billy were the only ones that were hers because she adopted us. Um, but uh, she didn't take no shit. Um, I think she literally would have killed Arlene if she would have done. Okay, but she did not know. No. Uh, okay. uh, I believed Arlene would kill my dad. You believe, yeah. Fuck yeah. yeah. Like, I mean, I had no reason not to. Right. You know, she gave me no reason to ever think that she had changed her mind. Right. Uh, yeah. Crazy. No, it is. I know. And I was wondering about that later when I was re-listening to it and editing it. I was like, oh, I should have asked that. I wonder if she knew also, you know. You know, and there's a part in the book that I don't talk about. Uh, My dad and Arlene split up for like a year. Oh. And him and Cass got back together. Oh, shit. By this point, I was like 10. Yeah, I was like 10, 10 and a half. Um, Because they got together right before in the winter. So my birthday's in the winter. So yeah, I was like, probably, I think I was 10. Um, but I, by that point I was so fuck you. I won't do what you tell me. <laughs> like, I mean, like I went and cleaned my room. I would steal her money. I would steal my dad's money. Um, yeah, I was just a tyrant and she worked so hard, so much that finally I'm the one who drove her away. And my dad, he can't be alone. So he took Arlene back immediately. Isn't that insane? <laughs> I got away from her. And because of my bad behavior, I brought her back. So my my instinct, though, is to say to you right now that you were 10 years old. No, no, no. no, no. I, that can't be your fault. That just broke my heart a little. That's not your fault. <laughs> yeah, no, no, I understand. <laughs> but, like, that's that was part of I my I hear thing. you, though. I understand. Yeah. 
That is crazy though, that they got back together for a year. Cause my, my mom is a social worker and she's dealt with domestic violence and extreme child abuse her entire career. And I asked her about your episode and cause I don't have a lot of experience with this, fortunately. And I said, Hey, I need you. She listens to most of my episodes, but I said, I really need you to listen to the last one and just let me know your thoughts on this extreme case. And I said, you know, the woman said that she was going to kill his dad and abused him bad for a long time. And like no one in town knew, I guess. And the dad didn't know, like, I just want you to listen to it. And she said, yeah, the abusers know what to say. That's really common to threaten to hurt someone. And then the kid never talks about it again, ever. She was like, that's common. That's absolutely. And she was like, and in those days, in those kinds of situations, people in town, you look the other way, you're not going to get involved, you know? Yep. And, and I was like, wow, okay, that's crazy. You know what I mean? Like just blows my mm-hmm. mind, you know? Yeah, and it's funny because, like, all of my friends' parents, like, if I started hanging around too much, then all of a sudden they weren't allowed to play with me anymore. Really? Why? Oh, oh yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, what? Oh, because uh, nobody liked the, so, so my dad was very well respected in my hometown. Um, he was a war veteran. He worked right. at a college that was in my hometown. Uh, he did detective work for the police, private detective work for the police. Um, he did private detective work for the college. Like the college thought that like somebody was growing weed in their dorm room. My dad would like stake them out and shit. And I talk about that in the book. You know what I mean? Like we used to play Chinese checkers, chess and stuff like that um, on his stakeouts. Um, so that first memory I have, I talk about that Christmas Eve when the cops came and my mom tried to kill my dad. And there, it, it was really legitimate. It was like, they were there for like 10 minutes. They yeah. pulled, they pulled my dad outside. They pulled my mom inside. Like two of them talked to her, two of them talked to him. And it was like, almost like in a boxing match where they make you touch gloves and you're cold. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. yeah fucking. So I think when my dad, it's the Arlene's family, her husband, Eric was a teamster who was so abusive to her and her kids. Like he used to come home. He drank from the time he woke up in the morning, beer, went to work, worked on uh, Greyhound buses and got off, drank until the bar that he liked to drink at closed at midnight. And he would come home and he would either sit and drink whatever he had in the house. And if he didn't have anything in the house, then he would beat up on her and the two oldest boys. Yeah, like he would take all their clothes and dump them in the middle of the room and piss all over them so they wouldn't have anything to wear for school. I, to my knowledge, I'm the only person she's ever abused. Okay, she was the abused, and I think that when my dad rescued her from that situation, she viewed me as a threat to that security. Yeah, because like up to that point, I was the apple of my dad's eye. I was just a little. Is she still alive? I don't know. You don't know. Hey, honestly, I don't care. Um, if if I if she walked up to me and was like, "Hey, Tommy," I'd be like, "Oh, hey, how you doing?" I have nothing it, to say. Was she married to your dad still when he passed away? No, 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 no. They they oh. were they were only common law. Um, oh, okay. Yeah, they um 
they were together for so long and like had bank accounts and shit like that, paid bills together that they were just common law. Now he left her shortly after I left New Jersey. Oh, all right. Okay. Okay. Uh, so you have no idea where she is or. Uh, no. And I, I, honestly, I don't even know how to spell her maiden name. Like oh. I just, my old stepbrothers, like I don't even know how to spell their name. Yeah. So like, just like that door's closed. You yeah. Know what I mean? Yeah. Um, well, Janine, it's, I, lo- I love talking to you. It's been a great thank time. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Um, thanks for coming on. Of course. Um, yeah. You want to tell the people where to find you and then I'll, sure. I'll be in the. Yeah, in the- absolutely. So chasing heroin across all platforms, heroin with an E. So like chasing female hero on TikTok, Instagram, and my podcast is on Spotify, Apple, Google, all the regular places. And that's Chasing Heroin also. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to come talk to us. Yeah, thank, thank you, you for having me. So much. Like you're, you have an amazing story. And um, yeah, it's, it's super, super important for, for you guys to keep telling your story. So thank you. Oh, wait, you know what? I want to do a quick little, let's do a um, oh, yeah. program thing. All right. One, two, three. Hi. Awesome, guys. Thank you so much. (laughs) Have a great week. All right, you too. Thank you. Let me know if you need anything else. All right. Anything that we talk about triggers you or you feel like you need to reach out, you can contact us through our website, nolovepodcast.com. Or follow any of the links in the show notes or in the description of the video. Thank you for tuning in. Always be safe. Namaste. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.